Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. Let me introduce you to Lynn. She is a global visionary and activist, co-founder of the Pachamama Alliance, working to preserve the Amazon rainforest and engage in community-based climate action. She's the founder of the Soul of Money Institute and the author of the best-selling book, The Soul of Money. She's been instrumental in raising tens of millions of dollars for social change projects over the last four decades, helping to end world hunger, alleviate poverty, and address all kinds of issues that relate to our health and the sustainability of the planet. She's the author of a new book, Living a Committed Life, Finding Freedom and Fulfillment in a Purpose Larger Than Yourself, certainly something Lynn has done living a committed life. And it's my great pleasure now to introduce you to Lynn Twist and to have her be with us here on Insights at the Edge. Thank you, Tammy. I'm so excited to be on your program and love you and love sounds true and just love talking to you. Who doesn't? <laughs> In your new book, Living a Committed Life, you write that one of your superpowers, and I'm going to emphasize one, but one of your superpowers is seeing possibility and speaking about it. And mm -hmm. I thought to myself, I need to know more about this. I need to know more about it because often I'm someone who sees kind of like the worst case scenario. That's the first thing I see. <laughs> and then I have to talk to other people and I start seeing possibility, but it's not, I don't have that. I mm. barely have it as, I have it as a power, but certainly not a superpower. And I see how valuable it is and I'd like to develop it. So talk to me about how this capacity lives in you. Oh my goodness. No one's ever asked it quite that way. So you're so good. Um, well, I, I don't know if there's any formula. I think it's a little bit the um, the way I, uh, I I kind of was born because I was a very happy child. But I also have learned that um, possibility is vital for us to create the future we want. Um, when people don't have possibility, when it's tamped down, when it starts to evaporate, when it starts to disappear, um, that generative capacity that we all have to source ourselves and create a new future is um, is also hampered. Um, and especially when we're um, having a downer, you know, a bad day or uh, or when we have a breakdown, which everybody has, it's part of being human. So um, I've I maybe maybe what uh, one way of saying it to you and in, in answer to that question is I uh I realized I have a special love for possibility, a special love for generating futures that that lift us out of the darkness. And I committed to that. And when I used to work at the Hunger Project many years ago, <clears throat> people really counted on me for that because that work was beautiful and continues to be. And it's also really, really hard uh, when you're in a refugee camp. Uh, after a war and people are starving and very few people have food and water and the uh, the the situation is is so 
um, dire. Um, I learned somehow to see the spirit in people, the the magnificence of their commitment to stay alive, the love they have for their children, uh, to focus on that which would give me access to generating possibility for them. Um, so in many ways, I think I developed it. Uh, I had it maybe to begin with, and then I developed it because it was necessary to get through the the dark uh, passages that um, uh, that I was in when I was working on hunger and poverty. Um, and now it's just a muscle. I, I think it's a muscle, well, just like gratitude, which I know you're really good at. Um, you know, the more you exercise your, the more you, you know, exercise your tennis for tennis serve and practice it, the better you get. Same thing with generating possibilities, same thing with uh, finding gratitude for like anything and everything. So it's become a muscle um, and people count on me for that. That's the other thing. And when people count on you for something, you have to deliver. <clears throat> So in terms of how you get there, you just, when it's there, exercise it, strengthen it, and know that there's always a possibility. It's always there. Okay. So we're going to exercise this muscle uh, together here, Lynn. You're my possibility trainer. So so thank you. Uh, <laughs> seriously. And right now during this time that we're in, I think for a lot of people, it's hard to see the possibility of this time. We see mm -hmm. the despair and feel the pain of this passage that we're mm -hmm. in, hopefully a passage to something filled with possibility. How do you see this time we're in? Well, I see it as a, uh, a massive breakdown in every sector of society, the economy, the, our health, our uh, uh, democracy, our political landscape, our education system, uh, even our religious uh, faiths are in many cases in breakdown. Um, and the, the big one is the climate crisis, uh, global warming, everything related to that species extinction. And I could go on and on with that one is so gigantic. <clears throat> and so um, I, um, I see this big giant breakdown as an epic passage for the human family and as massive, uncompromising feedback for us. If you look at it as feedback um, and look at it as uh, a, a message from the mother, the, uh, the earth, everything comes from the earth. I mean, everything. This computer that I'm looking at, the microphone I'm speaking on, my coffee cup, not just the plants, the animals and the humans, but everything comes from the earth, including the virus. And I sometimes, um, without stepping over the pain, the suffering, the loss of life, the dissolving of thousands of businesses, probably millions of them, uh, economic downturn in country after country, um, without stepping over that, acknowledging that, knowing, you know, you got COVID, I got COVID, I got it several times, um, losing people we love, the tragedy of the epidemic, the pandemic. I also see the power of that disruption and that in many um, circles that I'm in with indigenous people, uh, they see, uh, see it as the re response from the mother to a primordial uh, yearning of the human species to help us disrupt the way we were living that is inconsistent with the long-term future of life. And um, and that we couldn't disrupt or interrupt the way we were living. We we're so powerful, but not powerful enough to disrupt the trajectory that we're uh, we're on that is inconsistent with our own survival and the survival of life, uh, human life, at least on this planet. And so the mother uh, has disrupted us, and uh, and will continue to. I hope. Uh, funny to say that, but in a way, until we find our way to a path that is consistent with the long-term future of life. So another way of saying it, if there's a metaphor to use, which I want to suggest, I've had uh, three children. Many uh, people listening perhaps have had children uh, or know people who have had children. And when you're pregnant and you don't know you're pregnant, 
uh, and you're in what's called morning sickness, you think you're sick. You really do feel ill. You throw up in the morning sometimes. You want to you're exhausted. You, your energy is different. You want to eat strange things. You can't sleep sometimes until you go to the doctor. You think you're really sick. And then you find out oh, you're pregnant. Oh, my God. You know, if especially for people who want to get pregnant, uh, there's a there's a child in me. There's a new life forming. Then that context, that holding, that frame changes everything about the illness. You're still throwing up in the morning. You still need a nap in the afternoon. You still feel tired, but you're so excited to have people help you with your groceries. You're, you're kind of proud of throwing up in the morning. You're kind of excited about having to take a nap um, because you're giving birth to new life. So one way of looking at what's going on right now that's so troubling is we're in morning sickness for a species that's lost its way and that is pregnant with a new kind of human being. And the pregnancy may be very, very long, and every pregnancy does not produce a baby. But um, the pregnancy also will probably lead us to a very painful birth. Birth is not easy. The more it hurts, the closer are you having a baby. I remember that when I was having my, my kids. So that's a metaphor. It's merely a metaphor, but it's a conversation to live in to understand that perhaps this is happening, as Paul Hawkins says, not to us, but for us. And if, if we can receive the feedback, incorporate it and know that the mother, the great mother, the earth or life or the divine, the power greater than us, it, it's not a punishment. It's an ally to help us do what we all know deep in our hearts we need to do, which is change the trajectory of the way the human family is living on this planet and in the community of life. So that's generating a possibility for you, for me. And with every single breakdown that we have on planet Earth and the breakdowns we have in our life, which happen all the time, that's part of being human. One of the things that I like to remind us perhaps or name is that I think in the seeds of every breakdown, no matter how dark, are the seeds of a breakthrough that's bigger than that breakdown. And whether that's true or false, I live that way. And so far it's been pretty darn true. So what are the seeds in this breakdown that will give us a breakthrough that's way greater than the breakdown that perhaps we've been waiting for? So that's one way to look at the mess we're in and um, how to hold the light for uh, the possibility. Now, Lynn, you, you use this phrase, telling a new story. And, you know, mm -hmm. it goes right along with what you've been saying. If we tell a different story, we're pregnant, we're not just suffering with an illness, it changes everything. And you write, we don't necessarily live in the reality of the world. We live in the conversation we have about the reality of the world. And that narrative, that conversation is malleable. We can tell a new story. And it seems to me that this is part of the muscle work of being a possibilitarian uh, or whatever uh, <laughs> word you use for it is telling a new story. My question to you is, how do you know this malleable story? How do you know it's like a real story and not just kind of the story you want to have happen? Or is there a difference or how do you see that? Well, I would say that, Tammy, Simon, that your work is about this. So I, your work is about so many things. But in one dimension, all the Sounds True podcasts that I listen to, the beautiful books, the, the recordings, you know, are all about creating conversations that empower us, that nurture us, that uplift us, that tell the divine truth. I think that's why you named it Sounds True. You know, what is the sound of truth coming through? And so I I say that, you know, I'll, I'll repeat what you said in my own way, and I know you read my words, but I don't think we really realize that we don't really live in our lives even. We don't really live in our relationships. We don't really live in our communities and our 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 world, we live in the conversation we have about our lives. We live in the conversation we have about our relationships. We live in the conversation we have about our community, we have about our world. And we can't always change immediately uh, what's going on in our relationship if we're having a snarl with someone that we care about, or we can't necessarily change 
immediately what's going on in our community, but we can we have absolute omnipotence over the conversation we have about our lives, the conversation we have about our uh, about our relationship, the conversation we have about our community. That's where the levers and dials of life are, where we can find access, uh, agency, sovereignty. So it's not true false because I don't know that there's true false really in what I'm talking about here. It's how do you empower yourself so you stay centered in who you are and be able to generate the best possible self, the best possible me. I did a, um, a, a, a little course last week with, um, with a group of women and uh, some of whom are having a, a, a downer about Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever it uh, applies to, because the holidays can be dark for some people who who grew up in a divorced family where people were fighting at the table or uh, they were so sad when their mom or dad left or someone died or, you know, and, and this time sometimes is not a joyful time for them. Uh, and um, And we were looking at what is it that people in those situations can do to use the levers and dials of conversation to have a holiday season that starts to change that uh, mood, that way of feeling, that way of being. And then the constant, you know, consumerist franticness and pressure we have to buy, 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 buy. And so we talked about just exactly this. What are the levers and dials to shift that conversation from loneliness to, to being in the communion of life, to being in the all one, which is the source of the word alone, and realize these are holy days. Uh, this is That's the source of the word holidays. And how can we get in touch with the wholeness, the holiness of life, the sacredness of life during this time, and not um, be going into that dark hole for some of those people? And it's really... What is the conversation you're going to generate about the day? What is the conversation you're going to generate about the holidays? And rather than commiserate, where are you going to go to and who are you going to talk to? And what's that conversation going to be that lifts you out of that and creates some joy? Because I, I say, you know, this is another thing that I think is really useful to, to imagine. And this is, once again, what empowers us. Whether it's true or false, I can't say. I don't know. But I think pain and joy are related. They're one. They're one. They're the more pain and suffering we are willing to allow ourselves to feel deeply, the more capacity we have to express joy. It's almost like it expands our capacity for joy, expands our capacity to live fully. And so to be in pain for as long as that's useful and you can tolerate it and really feel it can be helpful. Uh, and then coming out of it is something that one needs to um, uh, generate a, a new conversation. So I don't know, I can give you an example. Yesterday I was cranky and crabby when I woke up. I don't know why, but I was cranky and crabby and I was supposed to make a video um, fundraising video for the Pachamama Alliance. And my uh, colleague, Sarah Vetter, came over and was with her, you know, video camera and set up a whole thing. And I said, I, I just, I'm too crabby. I can't do it. <laughs> and so what we did was she sat with me and uh, across from me on a stool. And I sat on the other side of the stool. And we did this process where I complained and complained and complained and complained and said, I know I'm right about this. And this makes me mad. And I'm discouraged about this. And this made me upset. And I didn't like this about this. And this one, someone said this. And she sat there. She said, I got it. Thank you. What else? I got it. Thank you. What else? She didn't try to fix it. She didn't try to make me feel better. She didn't do anything. She just let me what I call kind of dump. And, um, and at the end when I, there was nothing left and she just kept saying, what else, what else, what else? And then we reversed it. And I was a witness for her without trying to fix it or make her feel better or anything. And then we went for a walk. The trees are so beautiful right now. It made us cry. It was raining in the Bay area. That's like heaven sent. We've been desperate for rain. So the rain was glorious. We came back and life was completely transformed. So we shifted our conversation. And um, 
we're the same people, the circumstances are the same, all the things we complained about were still, you know, there. But we we knew that we had the power to shift our conversation and therefore our experience of life. So um, whether you asked what's true, I don't know. I I feel nature is true, actually. Um, that's one place where I can always find the truth for myself or what I'm calling the truth. But uh, how I relate to what's going on is where I have power, where I have levers and dials, where I have sovereignty. In Living a Committed Life, one of the sections that impacted me the most, so it's interesting here that you're talking about the relationship between great joy and deep pain, is a section on being proximate to suffering. And that mm. willingness that you've had in your own life as an activist to get right close to suffering and how that's changed you. And I wonder if you could share a story about that, how your own willingness to be proximate to suffering and how you did it, that's part of what I'm really, how you did it without saying like, no way, this is too much. No, thank you, I'll go back to the hotel or whatever in your travels, how you did it and how it changed you. Oh God. Um, well, gosh, um, I, I, I did it because it was there. So I, um, but I realized how powerful it was and that's why I wrote about that. Um, and also Brian Stevenson is one of my great heroes. And I don't know if you've interviewed him, but he started the equal justice initiative and he works with people who are, um, on death row. Um, and, um, and, and that's that phrase actually directly comes from him, stay proximate to suffering. Um, I think if we don't allow ourselves to have some experience of suffering, and now we have our own suffering, but really profound suffering of other people, um, we're, we, we may live an in, a more inauthentic life, if I can put it that way. So, but let me tell a story. So I, I, um, I'll tell the story of the Ethiopian women. Is that, would that be the right one? So um, I uh, I work on for the Hunger Project for many, many years. And after the 1984-1985 famine in Ethiopia, which was one of the most horrendous famines in the history of the world, a million people died, most of them children under five in the Rift Valley of, of Ethiopia. And I was there after that famine. I was there during that famine, but after that famine, and I found myself in a setting that was uh, uh, sitting around a dry well with seven women, Ethiopian women, each of whom, all of whom were mothers, who had lost every single child to starvation. Their, their babies, their, their teenager, their 10-year-old, every single woman, every single child had had starved to death in their arms. And, you know, I just it's unimaginable to lose a child. I think any of us who have children can't even imagine it or have lost one. It's it's the most profoundly tragic thing you could possibly experience or imagine. These women lost every child and they were there and could not feed them, had no water, had no food. And, um, you know, in one case, a, a woman shared that the baby died at her breast while she was because she had no milk. She hadn't had water. And so so many days and she looked down and the baby had stopped suckling and even trying and, and, and was dead. So anyway, it's a long story, but we sat around the dry well and, and consistent with their tradition, they wanted to acknowledge the life and death of each child and tell the story of each child and tell the story of their excruciating death. And so one woman had lost 11 children. I mean, this took a long time. It was five days and five nights. And they would tell the story of little Muhammad. The mother would say, Limon Muhammad was, was four. He was, he was walking towards a, a mirage. He thought he saw water on the, on the ground. And then he fell uh, and I went to get him and he was dead. Uh, and then she would talk about what that was like. And then we would, she would start crying and we would all cry. You couldn't help it. And they would wail and keen is another way of talking about what they're doing. Keen, screaming, crying for little Muhammad. And then we'd take a break and then we would talk about Malaika who died at her breast. And 
same process, key, cry. And it went for days and nights, days and nights. I mean, it's hard to even talk about this without crying myself because it was so exhausting, emotionally huge, like nothing I can ever, ever had before or since. And um, by the time we were done, five days and five nights, we were just, you know, completely wiped out. But they were free. The women were free. Um, in a way, I can't really put words around, but they were free. And um, so that last day, each one of them made a commitment, and I was their witness to uh, spend the rest of their life getting educated. They didn't read or write. Um, uh, so that they would be able to uh, to live in a way that would have at least contribute to having no other mothers have that horrible, horrendous experience of having their children starve to death in their arms. And so um, I was a witness to that, and it was super inspiring. I mean, it was just incredible that they made that commitment. And they bonded together. We hugged. You can imagine it. So right after that, I had an appointment or in my schedule, a, a, a commitment to meet with an investment club in New York of women investors. And I'm a, I've been fundraising all my life, as you pointed out, and I've raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And they wanted to talk to me about the Hunger Project, but they also want to talk to me about their relationship with money. And so I went to New York right after Ethiopia, and I was sitting in a Park Avenue apartment that was so beautiful and so opulent with, it happened to be seven women same number. Women dressed to the nines in designer clothes, just beautiful, gorgeous wives of Wall Street, you know, merger and acquisition guys, probably. I don't know that they made whoever they were married to it, but plenty of my, uh, money. And um, I couldn't tell them anything except about the women in Ethiopia. I was just, it would just come, just come out, out of me like a fountain. And we cried, all seven of us and myself, about these women and what they'd gone through from the tragedy, but also from how inspired I was by them, actually. And um, then at some point, you know, all of us realized seven women, seven women. And the women I was meeting with in New York had a different kind of hunger. You know, we the Hunger Project really has always been about the front and the back side of the hand of hunger, the front side of the hand of hunger, um, hunger, malnutrition, physical hunger, starvation, malabsorptive hunger. Um, the back side of the hand of hunger, and it's it's related. It's the same. Is the hunger for meaning in our lives, uh, the hunger for to make a difference, the hunger to matter. And the women in New York were were desperately starving here, while the women in in Ethiopia were hungry here or had gone through that experience. Um, and so we put these two hungers together in the Hunger Project, and here it was in front of my face, seven women in New York desperately hunger for meaning, seven women in, in, in Ethiopia hungry to make a difference with their life also now, and we put them together, we decided to put them together, and as you can imagine, it was a miraculous, not halves with half-nots, haves and haves and not h-a-l-v-e-s h-a-f h-a-v-e-s h-a-v-e-s these these women have incredible skills courage depth the women in ethiopia knew the local language knew how to navigate a corrupt government got themselves educated from kindergarten all the way through getting three of them got phds one became a lawyer um and and these women made resources available to these women but the resources that these women gave to these women were resources that they needed. Strength, courage, spirit, inspiration, vision, making a difference with their lives. And the children of these women who were entitled kind of, you know, not, not really the kind of raising kids with a lot of money is hard to do well. Um, uh, and their kids went to Ethiopia. I mean, it was miraculous for all of them. And um, that was, when I, and these women being proximate to these women suffering, suffering during when they had to pull themselves out of poverty and hunger. Um, and these women being proximate to the suffering of the people in, in the affluent world. This deepened all of us, deepened, expanded our hearts like 
busted us open, broke our hearts open in a way that I don't know what would have happened otherwise. So that's what I mean. And that that I've had thousands of experiences like that. And I've taken people to the places like uh, maybe they would never experience. Um, and that deep understanding and proximate to suffering and pain um, is not something to be afraid of. In my life, I've, I've always moved toward it. Uh, at first, I thought I could be helpful. And maybe I have been. Um, but I, I want to just quote Rachel Naomi Remen, who I think we both know. She says, helping acknowledges that who and what you're working on is weak. Fixing uh, acknowledges or says that who or what you're working on is broken. Serving says who and what you're working on is whole. And um, I, I moved from helping and fixing to serving. The closer I got to suffering, the more of a servant I've become. Wow, Lynn, I mean, that's such a, a powerful and um, amazing story. Uh, I'm also struck by you saying that it's one story of many in your life. I have one a little question. When you said at the end of their days of grieving together, of which you were a part of, they were free. I was really moved by that. What in it in the grieving was so deep and thorough that they were free? Um, I don't know how to answer that, Tammy. I just know that they were altered in their being. And it's almost as if they had uh, there was some honorable closure, which I also write about in the book. Um, they started to see they had something to live for. And um, before that, I think they might have taken their own lives because being a childless mother in Ethiopia is not, is not uh, acceptable. <clears throat> and yet they were all childless mothers then. And so they, they were free to live a new life they were free to choose life you might say to go on and um i, I, I you give me the opportunity to say something else that, that you're not asking but i'll say it anyway please um one of my friends uh tracy apple who i work very closely with when her husband died very suddenly um she's a buddhist and she spent she went into a very very horrendous grief process like anybody would when they lost lose their person they love most in the world and um she's studied with a she's her teacher is a wonderful um buddhist teacher out at, at green gulch here in, in the bay area and her teacher said to her grieving is really 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 important and what it is is medicine for the attachment and i say that because there's something about that that's so powerful grieving is medicine for the attachment and he said, when the grieving is complete, all that will be left is love. Love not rooted in the attachment or colored by the attachment. This is a Buddhist phrase, but what, what will be left is love, unconditional love. And that's kind of what happened, I think, when I look at that. I've never really thought about what you just said, um, what you asked me to say. Um, the attachment to being a mother, maybe, and knowing that that's the only identity they had, and there was no other, perhaps they were free to choose a new identity. I don't know. Mm. And Lynn, what would you say to that person who uh, heard what you just described and heard you say, you know, I've never shied away from suffering when it's been right in my face. I've turned towards it. And the person who says, actually, uh, I don't know if I can handle it. So I've turned away. I don't know if I can handle it. You know, I want to help from a distance or something, but I don't know if I could, I don't know. What would you say to that person? Well, I would say that they probably do turn towards suffering, but in a different way than I do. When they lend uh, a hand to someone in their life, maybe not an Ethiopian woman who lost all their children from starvation, you know, that was an extreme example. But when a friend is hurting, uh, when someone has a cancer diagnosis and you go to them right away and say, I'm here for you. That, that's, that's what I mean. 
or when um you know when uh you your daughter or son gets bullied at school and you hold them when they come home from school just hold them close to you uh while they're crying or you know we all have suffering around us we have our own suffering um we we do move towards suffering um in many many ways other than the drama that i just uh described so in my life i've had the opportunity and the circumstances to move towards the kind of suffering that for some people is totally unconfrontable and it used to be for me too i don't want to skip over that it used to be for me too but part of the purpose of my book is to is to tell people if you make a commitment larger than your own life that commitment will come back and shape you into who you need to be to fulfill it. It's really powerful. We we often think that, you know, Gandhi was born, you know, a genius, and then he found a way to express it. Yeah, maybe, but maybe he was born, and then he made a big commitment, and it came back and shaped him into who he needed to be to fulfill that commitment. I say that's really the way it works. You know, you make a commitment to run a marathon, and it comes back and makes you someone who has the courage and the resolve to get through the days you don't want to run. And then you have that new strength and then you have that new resolve. So I'm I'm suggesting that I made a big commitment ending world hunger and it made me into a kind of person who could be in those circumstances and tolerate that. But if your commitment is to be a, the best friend you can possibly be and make a, a difference in people's lives who move into your field um then you'll find a way to be with the people you care about in the in their darkest moments and be there for them so it's really depends on what your commitment is and i think all of us want to be of service want to be of use want to make a difference with our life i think we want that almost more than anything that's my ground of being i can't prove that that's true but that's been my experience and so i invite people to know that when your heart is breaking and people come into your field and and hold you that that's something that that you've been doing all your life too and that you'll do more and more and more of it if you have a commitment larger than your own life you'll have those opportunities and when you when you step up to them and step into them it expands your capacity for everything, <laughs> not just to be with suffering, but to be with this world and who you are. Now, Lynn, you have had several commitments that you've made in your life to purposes that are bigger than anything per personal. And after your commitment for two decades to end world hunger, a new commitment emerged in your life that I learned surprised you. You weren't expecting it. And the story of how that happened is, dare I say, mind-blowing. And I wonder <laughs> if you can uh, share it with our listeners. Um, I would love to, thank you. Well, I was very, very deeply engaged uh, and committed to the Hunger Project uh, and had a role as the chief fundraiser for the entire world. So I managed fundraising operations in 50, 53 countries. And I also was very engaged in um, Sub-Saharan Africa, all the countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Guinea-Bissau, Ethiopia, Ghana, Senegal, Zambia, Zimbabwe, places like that, Namibia, and also uh, the subcontinent of Asia, India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka. And I had, you know, responsibility for hundreds of thousands of volunteers i mean you know they didn't directly report to me but i was in charge of our volunteer network which was hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people and then raising hundreds of millions of dollars so i was very 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 busy <laughs> i had my hands full and i had three kids and you know it was i was just my full my plate was overflowing uh, and um and so i thought i'd do that for the rest of my life um that, that i didn't really there wasn't a, a free second um and then a, a a large donor and friend of mine and um uh his name is bob uh had a project in guatemala we weren't working we the hunger project weren't working in guatemala or south america at all we were working um in asia and africa at the time and um 
he said, I'm, I'm doing a, I have a pet project, a, an organization I started in Guatemala. And I, we love the way the hunger project fundraising is designed and so heartful and not manipulative. And I want you to train my, my development director. I want you to come to Guatemala and with some of our donors and train my development director. And I'll give you a, uh, if you could take a two week, week, um, break, you know, a little bit of a leave, uh, I'll, I'll make sure all your targets are met, <laughs> my financial targets, which was a little bit of a bribe, but I accepted it willingly. Okay. Yay. So he made a very large contribution. So I went to Guatemala and I went with John Perkins and I don't know if you've interviewed John, but John's an extraordinary guy who was in the Peace Corps in the in the 60s and got very involved with indigenous people in Ecuador, the Ecuadorian Amazon with the Shuar people. And he became a trained shaman himself. Uh, so we're in Guatemala, John and I kind of co-leading a group of donors for our, our mutual friend, Bob. And we realized there's a shaman involved in these Mayan projects, but the shaman is not part of any of our meetings and we don't know who he is and people kind of won't talk about the shamanism part of this. So John, whose instincts were, let's let's see if we can have a meeting with this guy. And eventually, through a lot of very magical things that I'll skip, we ended up with 12 of us on a mesa in the mountains of Guatemala with this remarkable Mayan shaman named Roberto Pose. I'll never forget this man. And um, John Perkins, my dear friend, uh, knew a lot about shamanism, and he uh, spoke Spanish fluently and a little bit of Mayan, enough to kind of translate for the shaman, Roberto Pose, who spoke only Mayan. So the shaman asked us to meet him at midnight. That's when we were starting the ceremony, at midnight, uh, on this mesa, this mountaintop in near Totonicapan, uh, Chichicastenango area of Guatemala, for people who've been there. Um, and so we're in very rural, no lights anywhere around us and we arrive at this place uh that on the map that he drew for us and there's a, a big fire uh and a very very brilliant starlit sky i mean a million stars it was so clear and gorgeous it was just breathtaking you could practically read from the stars and there was no moon and um and there's this fire and the shaman um asks us to lie down around the fire with our feet towards the fire. So we made a kind of wagon wheel around this fire and the shaman and John, um, and he told, us, he told us to lie down. This is all through John's, you know, kind of rough translation. Um, and so we do. And John and the shaman begin to chant and drum. John had the drum and the shaman starts chanting and this drum and this whistling and chanting and this guy had the most mesmerizing voice i mean just incredible and his whistling and it was it was transporting and he told us to journey and i had no idea what he meant by that but i you know kind of thought that meant go to sleep and have a dream you know because <laughs> it was midnight why not but it didn't happen like that the, the his voice and the the drum and the whistling and the chanting and the night air and the crackling fire and the incredible experience of the stars overhead was just hypnotic. And I, I started to have a, a quiver in my right arm. It started to tremble. And I had this experience that I absolutely had to extend in my right arm. And it started shaking and it became so much larger and felt like this giant wing. And then my left arm started to quiver and I couldn't have held it close to my body for one more second. And I had to extend that. And then this sort of strange, hard thing started growing my face, which I realized was a beak. And then I had to fly. I could not lay there for one more second. I had to lift my body up in slow motion with these huge, amazing wings that had grown on my body and I started to lift myself up to the starry sky that was so glorious that I flew up toward the stars and at a certain point I looked down and there I was down below still with all the other people around the fire and the the shaman's voice his whistling and the drumming was was still very, very present right in my ear. I wasn't somehow far away from that, but I was way up in the sky. 
And I was in a state of uh, kind of enormous bliss. And then at a certain point, uh, I looked down because it started to dawn. And I looked down and I was flying in slow motion, this beautiful experience of flight over a vast unending forest of green that went forever and ever and ever and ever. And it was magnificent and beautiful and breathtaking. And as I'm flying over this vast forest, I look down and I have this amazing cute vision. I can see all the way down to the forest floor if I focus and I can see little critters. But if I lift up my head and look ahead, I can see very, very far. And so I'm having this experience of absolute, uh, I don't know, nirvana, some amazing peace and bliss. And then um, these disembodied faces of men with orange geometric face paint on their faces started floating and yellow, red, and black feather crowns on their heads these disembodied faces of men started floating up from the forest floor through the canopy up to, to the bird, to me, calling in a strange tongue, like a plaintive kind of call, beautiful and, and also hypnotic. And then they disappeared down into the forest and I just kept flying. And then, you know, maybe a minute later, there was no time. So just then it would happen again. They would come up, float up and call to the bird, the disembodied faces of men with their headdresses, and then they would fall down into the forest again and again. And so it was in a language I didn't understand, but it was beautiful. And I was in, it was magical and mystical, but it was, it was real. It was, I was, this really was what was so. And then there was this loud bang, 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 drumbeat, and really loud. And it, startled me and I remember sitting up and opening my eyes and realized that I I didn't have wings I didn't have a beak I was just me and this was this was this shaman what he what he had produced or what he had made possible and I looked across the circle and the the fire was all gone it was in embers so there, it was very very hard to see him's face and he had face paint on too and there was no medicine in any of this it's just this, his voice and the drum and john oh, so then um he asked for what happened and we went around the circle and every single person shared that they'd become an animal including me and then at the end of the ritual he he completed it and and everybody left on the little minibus but he asked john and i to stay and john had had the same very much the same vision even though he was part of the ceremony he was also he also had a vision very similar and so the shaman said you need to go to these people this was not a vision this was a communication you're being called and you need to go to these people and I didn't know what he was talking about and John knew immediately he said Lynn I know who they are I know where they are I recognize the face paint I recognize the crowns it's the Achuar in Ecuador I was just with the Shuar. The Achuar came into our camp. They're seeking first contact. They've been dreaming. They're trying to dream people to them. That's how they communicate. They want to bring some people from the modern world to them for first contact. They want to initiate contact. This is that. I said, no way, John. I, I mean, I don't, it's not that I don't believe you. I just can't. I can't go to the Amazon. I don't know anything about the Amazon. I don't speak Spanish. I'm ending world hunger. I have a meeting in Ghana next week. You go. I I bless you. Go. Thank God. But but I can't do that. I'm, that's not my work. He said, they won't leave you alone till you come. Like a warning. And I, I, I kind of got mad at him. I, I thought, this is just too much for me. So I left. It was amazing and really inspiring. But I I finished the trip and I went to Ghana for a board meeting for the hunger project uh, for the Ghanaian hunger project. And I'm in the Novotel in Accra, Ghana on the ground floor in the small meeting room with five men and two women, three women, five men and three women in the conference room. And the Ghanaian people have very black, very blue, black skin. So dark, it's almost blue, black. 
beautiful, beautiful people. And they were having their Ghanaian Hunger Project board meeting, and I was sitting in from the global office, so I wasn't leading the meeting. So in this meeting's happening is very, very powerful dialogue. And at a certain point, the men, only the men, started having orange geometric face paint appear on their blue-black faces. And no one says anything about it. So I, I think I must be hallucinating. So I excuse myself and go to the ladies' room like we do, ladies do, to <laughs> whenever possible. When you don't know what to do, you go to the ladies' room. Um, and I splashed water on my face. And then I went back and um, and uh, sat down again. And everybody was normal. And they're still talking. And then like five minutes, 10 minutes later, happened again. Orange geometric face paint just appeared on the faces of the men. And I burst into tears. And everybody, including the men, you know, what, what's wrong? And I realized nobody else saw this but me. So I said, well, I'm feeling very, very ill. I'm so sorry. I can't stay. Uh, please just keep going on with your meeting. I'm going to go up to my room, pack my bag and go straight to the airport. I've been too many time zones, too many, too much travel. I, I can't stay. I was going to stay for five days, but I'm too sick. I'm going to go home. And they all were very worried, but I, I made them stay there. And I went up, packed my bag, went to the Accra airport, got the first plane to Frankfurt, first plane to Europe, which was to Frankfurt, then Frankfurt, New York, New York, San Francisco, and finally got home. And the whole way, whether I was, my eyes were open or shut, the faces just kept coming. So when I got home, I, I was just frantic and a mess and a wreck, actually. And I told Bill I was having these weird dreams. And I didn't tell him like I'm telling you because I didn't really, I thought there was something wrong with me. I was embarrassed. Uh, and then I tried to reach John Perkins and he was back in the Amazon, so I couldn't reach him. So I sent him a million faxes. That's what you could do. And voicemails. That's all we could do. This is 1994. And eventually he came back and he called me right away and he said, they're waiting for us, Lynn. We have to go. We need to take 10 other people, 12 of us all together. It's an incredible privilege to be first contact. It almost never happens. We have to go. And so I took another leave. I invited Bill, my husband. He didn't want to go. He had sailing regattas and business deals and everything. I made him come and he came. And we went uh, down to Quito, down the eastern, down the Valley of Volcanoes, over the eastern side of the Andes, the 12 of us. Took small planes, one, three at a time, into the uh, into the Achuar territory, which is roadless and pristine. And eventually we all were there and they came out of the forest with their orange geometric face paint, their yellow, red and feather crowns and spears. Loaded us in our gear into canoes and took us to a, a clearing where we camped and we began our relationship with the Achuar people of Ecuador, which became the beginning of the Pachamama Alliance, Pachamama meaning Mother Earth, an alliance between the indigenous people of the Amazon, uh, now 30 indigenous groups, and conscious people, conscious committed people in the modern world, like all the listeners who sound true, um, uh, for the sustainability of life. Um, and just one more brief thing, I was still in charge of all this stuff at the Hunger Project. And then now we had this thing happening in the Amazon. And it really became a partnership like, like nothing I'd ever known before in my life. And so I tried to do Pachamama Alliance and the Hunger Project. And then, um, thank God, I, I don't recommend this, but I got malaria um, from Ethiopia, actually, and, and, and India. I got two strains at the same time, and it just felled me. It took me down for nine months. So I couldn't do anything for anyone. And that was my quiet time to realize that that God, the universe, the natural world, the mother, the greater, the divine wanted me to, um, I had a second chapter in my life. I was 50 years old. It was um, something new was calling me. So I, the Hunger Project in nine months of my illness was able to replace me. And uh, Bill and I um, started the Pachamama Alliance. Um, whew, that's long, but that's it. <laughs> it's such a dramatic story, Lynn, of this being called and then answering the call and then having the breakdown you had with the malaria illness that allowed for the breakthrough of you to commit to the work of the Pachamama Alliance. I'm wondering for someone right now who's listening who says, 
you know, I've never felt a call with that kind of drama and kind of it's indisputable. I've never felt like the earth or a, a group was, you know, uh, interfering with my visions. I've never had that kind of thing. How would you suggest they hear the call in their life? Because it seems like you believe everyone does have a call. Yeah, well, you know, in retrospect, it all sounds so almost like a movie or something, but it was so confusing. And it wasn't so obvious to me then. And I, I just, you know, it sounds so wonderful. So I, you know, it is the stuff of a book in my life. At the same time, I want to say that um, it's my view, as you said, that everybody is who's born today has a role to play. I really believe that. I can't prove it. But we're at such an epic time in human history. I mean, it's epic. Everything's epic. All the breakdowns are epic. You know, the challenges are epic. The, the, the darkness is epic. The possibility is also epic, though. And so um, I feel that it's one of the reasons I wrote this book is that if, if you really think about it, there's a through line in your life not just you, Tammy Simon, which I know you're probably very aware of, everyone is, because we love you and it sounds true so much and you and you make so much, so much available. I want to say a lot about that, but there's a through line. We we look back at when we were little and there, you know, if you were the person who who on the kickball team chose the 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 most uh the best player first that you're one kind of person if you quote if you pick the person who who was the worst player first then maybe you're you're that's a sign that you're all about justice and social justice and making sure everybody has a chance you know maybe that's your commitment um and you just and that's a calling and you've always kind of been that like that and then you kind of formalize it by by making a commitment to live the rest of your life with with more emphasis on that. Or maybe you've always been someone since you were little who was drawn to trees, to, to, to sit under them, to protect them, to know about them. And, and then you, you know, got maybe you got involved in forestry and then you realize that you want to be involved in protecting the forest. You know, people, if they look at their life, who are your heroes and heroines all the way through your life? Those things give you clues to what's yours to do. And I say that we all have a role to play. When I say that, it's not a big role or a small role. It's just your role. And if you play it, your life will have a kind of meaning and freedom and fulfillment that you've dreamed of. And it, it, it takes just being conscious and paying attention to the things that one way, uh, when I'm working with people on directly on this, I sometimes ask them, what breaks your heart? That's a clue. What breaks your heart? Not just touches your heart, breaks your heart. And then what calls to you that that you're drawn to, that you you feel, uh, it has to do with this part of our anatomy. Uh, it has to do with being uh, more than doing. Uh, but usually there's a there's a through line. And 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 it's lots of times it's many things. Maybe it's just being a loving, unconditionally loving kindergarten teacher that every child that comes into your kindergarten, you have a commitment to see and really mirror back to them their own magnificence in a way that they never forget that for the rest of their life. It doesn't need to be ending world hunger, you know. Um, I tell the story about a bus driver that really impacted my, my husband when he was in business school. He always wanted to get on this guy's bus because this guy was committed to having everybody on his bus have a good day. If you took the 39 from this place or wherever you were to the end of the line or anywhere along the way you got Joe the bus driver and it was a good day for you because you got on his bus you know it, it it's it's available to all of us um and there's clues in your life and only you can see them if you if you awaken yourself to see yeah there's something that I'm here for and I'm going to find out what it is and I'm going to do it with all my heart Lynn, as we come to a conclusion, I'm just going to make a circle back to where we began about your superpower of being a, a possibilitarian. You write, the greatest threat <laughs> to creating the future we want is fear, discouragement, and cynicism. It's easy to be cynical. It's easy and cheap because it asks nothing of us. Cynicism is like a disease, an infection, and it's cowardly. What takes courage is to hold a vision 
and live into it. And I'm coming back mm. to this note because I think sometimes people think cynicism is a form of intelligence, something like that. Like, mm -hmm. look, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I, I read the news, I'm aware, I'm intelligent, of course I'm cynical. And the statement of yours, it's easy and cheap because it asks nothing of us. I found that quite searing. And I wonder if uh, you can make a comment about that here at the end. Um, well, uh, I want, I don't want to insult people who think they might be cynical. I just want to invite you to consider giving more of yourself because, um, it gives you permission to withhold. And I think we, we're all needed now. We're needed to step up and you called me a possibilitarian. I that's I like that. I the possibilist is um, I got that from Frankie LePay, Frank Francis Moore LePay. She calls herself a possibilist. Um, I don't think everybody needs to be like me. I, I really want to make sure I say that. Um, and I I and I and there are things that are really dark, and I don't step over them. I'm not Pollyanna. I worked on poverty and hunger. I worked with Mother Teresa. I I've I've held lepers in my in my arms. I've held dead babies in my arms. So I, I know about the darkness and I'm not afraid of it. Um, so I don't step over that. That's why I want to make sure I say that. I also know that um, we're in a, in a time when there's a, another quote I'm going to use from somebody I think you've interviewed, uh, Michael Beckwith. He says, pain pushes until vision pulls. Pain pushes until vision pulls. And pain does push us, but you can't get out of it without a vision to pull you through. And we all have a role to play. And maybe some people's role is to is to point to the pain. I, I maybe that's maybe I'm missing something here. I do point to the pain, but I also know that I'm where I'm committed because I'm a proactivist. I call myself a proactivist, not an activist, because I'm an activist for, not against. And I, um, I'm committed to pulling people through the pain into their vision because that's where I stand. And I know that works. So um, even the things that many people are against, I see them. I want to hospice their natural death with some respect and dignity. Respect comes from re-see, re-spectate, re-look. Uh, and they'll die faster. I don't attack. Um, and that I think have found that to be enormously effective. It takes a lot of patience, generosity, uh, and kindness, <laughs> but it's, it's good for me to be that way. Uh, and it, it actually is very practical. So pain pushes until vision pulls. And I'm, I have a muscle that I've developed to help people see the vision to pull them through the pain. And um, it's a privilege to do it, and it's a joy. And just one uh, final follow-up here, because as part of your vision, you mentioned the metaphor of here we are, we're pregnant. We're pregnant with a new human, a new way of being together as a species, a new earth. What is it that we're pregnant with? What's the vision, Lynn? <laughs> I, I, I wish I knew exactly. I mean, in, in the Pachamama Alliance, the organization that came from that big shift in my life, we say our work is to bring forth an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, socially just human presence on this planet. That's a pretty good definition of a new kind of human being, a new kind of humanity environmentally sustainable, environmentally generative, really, uh, socially just and spiritually fulfilled humanity. Um, a humanity that uh, understands its role in the community of life, uh, a humanity that's that's committed to ending human supremacy in its in its ugliness when it's when it's domineering and uh, and crushing other species and other forms of life. Uh, a human family that is that finds its role, its place, in the beauty and unfolding story of the universe. Uh, and I have a great trust in that. I, um, I know there's people who think we're going extinct. Uh, I know that we're useful. Our species is important on this planet, not 
you know, we've kind of overtaken things. So we're, we're a little bit out of, uh, way out of line, but we have a contribution to make and we belong here. Um, and what is our role now in the next hundred years? This is the first century of the third millennium. This is the first century of the third millennium. If you think of it that way, what is our species going to establish as our role in the next millennium? Are we going to continue to destroy everything around us? Or are we going to play uh, the kind of role that I think is getting born in us, which is to be um, earthlings, you could say, global citizens, universal humans that are rooted in um, the power of, of our humanity um, and the incredible infinite power of unconditional love, generosity, kindness, reciprocity, and what I wrote about in my last book, sufficiency, enoughness. You know, uh, Gandhi said there's enough for our need, but not for our greed. And we need to get ourselves there. So we realize that. Um, and I think we're on our way there. And this is a like a technicolor surround sound expression of how off we are, um, which is helpful uh, in its ugly way to wake us up and get us on track. So, and have us be reborn. So uh, that's the best I can do right now. Whatever it is um, we were pregnant with, I want us to do everything we can to have a beautiful new kind of human being be born out of all this chaos. I've been speaking with Lynn Twist. She's the author of the new book, Living a Committed Life, Finding Freedom and Fulfillment in a Purpose Larger Than Yourself. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in after the show Q&A conversations with featured presenters and have the chance to ask your questions, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community that features premium shows, live classes, and community events. Let's learn and grow together. Come join us at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world.